Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Those verses are often quoted, especially verse 8. That's a commonly quoted scripture uh, that we hear. We don't hear as much about the verses that follow. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is, these are angels that are telling about the second coming of the Lord. And then reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and this will be page 987. Verse 13, but we would not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And by asleep, he's meaning dead. These are people that have passed on. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. For the believer, the return of Christ is not something to be feared. Paul said you should encourage one another with the fact that Christ is coming again. So as I conclude this short three-part series on Advent, week one, we celebrated the incarnation, the first coming of Christ. Last week, we celebrated the second act of that redemptive play and that it was Christ in us, the hope of glory, dwelling in us through the Holy Spirit. And this week we will talk about what is yet to come and that is the future second coming of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, your word is inspired, God breathed, and we thank you for it this morning. I ask you that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts to receive your word, that we would see this in a way that we have never seen it before, that it would stir in us hope and anticipation for your coming again to rescue us in this world. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. You may be seated. So I, I read all of this, these verses this morning to show how the return of Christ and the restoration of all things are tied together. The return of Jesus Christ to this earth will usher in the restoration of the creation, the restoration of our bodies, and an age, so the Bible speaks of two ages, the present age and the age to come. And the age to come is where, according to Scripture, there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. All of these no mores that are in the Revelation. It's going to be an age that is hard for us to comprehend because we don't know anything about that. All we know is an age where that is mixed now with happiness and joy, but it's mixed with sorrow and tears, death, disappointment, pain, suffering, sickness. It's just part of what it means to live in this world. But when Christ returns, it will usher in an age to come where all of those things will not be in existence. In the beginning, so I, I talked about this last week. I'm going to do a little bit of a rehash because it applies here that in the beginning God dwelled with mankind in the Garden of Eden. We open up the scriptures, we see the creation of the universe, and we find Adam and Eve, mankind, in a garden, and we cannot comprehend what the relationship was like between God and humanity before the fall in the garden. The Garden of Eden was the original temple. We should think of Eden as a garden temple. The imagery there is unmistakable because a temple is where God comes down and meets man. And that's what happened in Eden, that God would come down and the Bible says walk with them in the cool of the day. It was an intimate, personal relationship that God had with his creation. And Adam and Eve even functioned as a type of priest in this garden temple because they were the caretakers of this. Eden was a sacred place. And Adam and Eve serve as mediators between heaven and earth. The story of the Bible is the story not only of God restoring mankind back to right relationship with him, it is the story of God restoring all things back to their original glory, to this pre-fall state in the garden. And the main plot in the Bible is that God is restoring creation back to the way it was before sin created this chasm, this gulf between heaven and earth. Heaven and earth were divorced when sin entered into the world, and God, since that time, is bringing them back through His redemptive plan, bringing heaven and earth back together. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that tells us that one is coming to make all of these things right. God is going to have a people. He's going to have one people that he's going to call out. It begins with God calling out Abraham and making him the father of the Jews and the father of all those who believe in Jesus the Messiah. And then God gives Moses the law for the people to follow until that promise is fulfilled in Christ. The first coming of Jesus, the first advent, was not the crescendo of God's redemptive play. It would have, as I said last week, two more acts. The coming of God and the Holy Spirit and the coming of God in Christ at the second coming. I have learned the hard way that what it means in part 
to have spiritual maturity, emotional maturity in Christ is to know what ideas and beliefs to hold on with a tight fist. These are non-negotiable. I'm dogmatic about these beliefs and to know what ideas I hold a little looser, a little more tentative. It does not take a lot of maturity to be dogmatic, unbending, unwilling to question. Why do I believe what I believe? Like, everybody has a belief system, but why? Like, why do I believe what I believe? And it's not easy to change what I believe. In fact, I can't just change what I believe just through mere willpower. I believe the sky is blue. If I wanted to believe the sky was purple, I couldn't. I, I, I could say, you know, I really want to believe this, but I can't. It, everything I see says the sky is blue. It's not easy to change what we believe. And the maturity, the Christian maturity, comes into play when we know that there are some ideas that we hold on to tentative with further understanding that is to come. So it's a good idea to be dogmatic, unbending on some things. What is the gospel? That is not up for debate. That is not up for discussion. We hold that tight, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the mere fact that there is a God, there is a creator. And that's no small thing. That's, that's not nothing to believe that. I've known, I'd say one of the greatest saints that I've ever known uh, confessed in a testimony service one time that they had struggled with the idea of whether or not God was even real. Is there even a God? You know, like, I've went through crises in my life, they said, in the testimony service where I struggle to know, is, is any of this even real? So these are things, these are crises of faith that people really do deal with. But we hold on to that, dogmatic, there is a God. We hold on tightly to the idea that Jesus is the only way to salvation. There's no other way except through Jesus for salvation. There's no other religion that leads to eternal life. We, we hold on to that. We're dogmatic about that. I'm dogmatic about holding on to the idea that God still performs miracles, that God still does mighty works in people's lives. Everybody's areas of what they hold on to tightly and what they hold on to a little more loosely can change. The idea that... Um, creation as far as how all this came to pass, what does Genesis 1 and 2 mean, I hold on to that fairly loose. I don't claim to fully understand how all that happened. Um, I, I did a big writing project a few years ago and hired somebody to edit it. And they were doing a, um, actually I hired them to do some design layout. I did not hire them to edit it. I hired somebody else to edit it. And he came back, he called me, and he said, you said in the book such and such and such. He goes, that is not right. He goes, it's, you know, and I, what I wanted to say is I didn't hire you for your input. I hired you for your layout expertise on the design of, of what I was writing. Uh, he goes, that's not, and so I, 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 we, we had that conversation. But he obviously held on to some things tighter as far as how this all came to be more so than I did. The future events the how of what's going to happen in the future, I'm dogmatic that Christ is going to return. That is unnegotiable for me. Less so on how it will happen, or I should say in what order it will happen. 
there are some things that after I read for 27 years studying the, the scriptures, um, I look at some of those texts and you go, that's a little bit of a puzzle. I really don't know how to interpret that. What I'm preaching this morning, the return of Christ is practical. Like a lot of people want practical preaching like seven tips for a better marriage or five tips for better finances or how to be the best version of you. Give me something practical, preacher. What I'm giving you this morning, there is nothing more practical because every single one of us in this room, every single person on the planet who ever lived will deal with Christ at his return. I, there is no escaping the fact that Christ is going to return if I believe this book and what that means to me. So it is the ultimate in practical preaching. Everybody thinks about the future in this life. We all think about our future. Most of that, or a lot of that, is shrouded in fear. We think about the future of our health. It's like, I spent quality time with two specialists this week. I see a heart doctor this coming up week i got to make another appointment with a specialist this week. It's like, I want the years I have left to be quality years and health-wise. I'm trying to do everything I can to take care of some things, but a lot of that is uncertainty in my mind. If it, if it means that today with my health, what's that going to look in 10 years and 20 years? So a little bit of a fear there. I think the older we get and we deal with these things, it comes up with all of us. Because what creates fear is uncertainty, and none of us know what the future holds. You think about retirement, that can create fear. Start running those online calculators, like, you know, what's going to happen someday? How much money am I going to have? And at the rate of inflation, what's that going to do to my, you know, just, I want my retirement just to hold its value, but with inflation, it's just going to kill people's retirement, and that creates fear. Relationships, ours, those of our children. Who are our children going to marry? What's going to happen in the future in the relationships? What is going to happen to our economy? That's creating a massive amount of uncertainty and fear. What does the future hold? What I'm preaching today is more relevant about the future than any of those things because all those things, while they are important, they are temporal. The future coming of Christ will affect you in this life or it will affect you in your death one way or the other. What I am not primarily interested in this morning is teaching all the views of what will happen in the future. This camp holds this is going to happen. I'm, I'll go into a little bit of that. Um, I'm not interested in bringing out the, they had a whiteboard in here last week, the whiteboard and drawing all the, the timelines. That's not what I want to do this morning. I'll touch a little bit about some of those ideas, but that's not my primary purpose this morning. The two areas where people disagree on, on these things, on prof, we call it biblical prophecy, and there's different ideas, uh, is one, the book of Revelation speaks of a thousand year period where the Satan will be bound and cast into a bottomless pit and the people of God reign with Christ during this thousand years. We call it the millennial reign because it's a thousand years. There are people who believe Christ will return before the thousand years. There are people who believe that Christ will return after the thousand years. And there are people that say the thousand year reign is purely symbolic. It's not a literal thousand years, so you can't press that thousand years into future events because it doesn't work very well. And when you do try to press that thousand years into future events, both camps 
that believe Christ will return before and Christ will, will return after readily agree there's problems with both of those. They don't fit into the future sequence very well. I've laid it all out and I'm like, yeah, there, there's kind of problems with, with both of those. People who believe that Christ will return after the thousand year reign, meaning Christ is not coming back until Satan is bound and, and all of this, those churches tend to be very involved in social causes because the idea is that they're going to Christianize the world. It's the idea that the world is going to become, for the most part, uh, the, the, the kingdom of God, the glory of God is going to, to cover the earth, and then that will usher in Christ's return. Uh, one of the prominent teachers of this, uh, that's practiced this, would be, and he's gaining a lot of attention the last month in the news because of the horrific crime that occurred in Moscow, Idaho, last month with four college students losing their life and no one has yet been caught but a pastor in that small town of 25,000 people um, they have a church there and that's what they're trying to do they're trying to infiltrate everything in the town the politics the government the businesses we, we want to make this a Christian community and the idea is that this idea will spread throughout the world and that will usher in the return of Christ I don't subscribe to that idea I'm not that optimistic. I don't see that really as, as being, and I understand the scriptures are where they get that, but I don't really subscribe to that idea. Um, then there is the debate within the group that believes that Christ will return before the thousand years, that when Christ returns, there's going to be a seven-year period called the Great, Great Tribulation. So. All the people that disagree about when Christ is going to return in relation to the tribulation actually all agree that Christ is going to return before the thousand year reign. So they say, okay, we, we all agree Christ is going to come back before the thousand year reign, but then some believe that the seven year period of time Christ is going to return, this what we call the rapture, and that the people of God are going to go away to heaven somewhere, and it's going to be this seven year period of time where it's going to be literal hell on earth, and then at the end of the seven years, the second coming of Christ. So they, they look at it as two events. The rapture is the first event. The second coming of Christ is the second event. They're two separate stages. Then you have people that think that it's going to happen right in the middle of the tribulation, and there's people that believe that Christ is going to return at the end of this seven years, which means that the people of God are going to go through this horrific seven-year period called the Great Tribulation. So this is all a, a great debate on how these things happen. How does biblical prophecy play out? I try not to impose too many of my ideas, but I am the one speaking this morning. Um, I am a, what would be described as a partial preterist, simply meaning that I, how I see biblical prophecy is that most of the prophecies in the Bible in Daniel and Revelation uh, were relevant to the people living in those times and most of that has been fulfilled as a partial preterist. A full preterist would say that all the prophecies have been fulfilled including the coming of Christ. I think all Christianity would affirm that being a full preterist and denying the second coming of Christ is heresy. You could not be considered to be within the Orthodox Church and believe that there is no future return of Christ. You would be outside the scope of Orthodoxy. 
we would not say that those who differ in the timing of events about the second coming are heretical because it's not of primary importance. I know people in all the camps I just described, the premillennial, the postmillennial people, the people that think the thousand years is symbolic. I know and love all those people. I know people who are pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. We all love each other. We all think we're part of the church. It's not something that we say, you know what, you can't, you can't worship here. You can't be part of the people of God because you see those things differently. Because I know a lot of very godly, smart people who hold all of those positions. So we say that is not primary. It is not of primary importance. Here's what is important to know is that heaven will come to earth. Christ will return and he will reunite heaven to earth. And my fear is, and I've shared this with a lot of my friends who are really steeped in, in the study of biblical prophecy, you can get so caught up in being right about how it's going to happen that you miss the bigger picture that it's simply going to happen. What does it mean for Christ to return? That, that's what's of primary importance. What does it mean? How it happens, the order that it happens. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm not. But what I believe I am right about, that the Bible is very clear about, is that Jesus is coming back to this earth. And it is important to know that the idea of a temple that God tabernacled or dwelt among his people in a tent and then a temple in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we are the temple. He dwells within us. Heaven meets earth within us, but only within us. Heaven has not yet met earth in our cities, our businesses, our government. Our world is chaotic. Heaven has not come down to meet earth yet, except within us. So in the Old Testament, one day a year, in one room in the tabernacle, one man, the high priest, got to experience the manifest presence of God. The Day of Atonement, once a year. The Jews still celebrate it. They call it Yom Kippur. It's the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. So one day a year in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Christ within us. But when Jesus returns in the age to come, heaven will come back to earth and the glory of the Lord will fill all of the earth. The prophet Habakkuk prophesied this, chapter 2, verse 14 in the Old Testament. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a prophecy. There is coming a day when this earth will be filled with the glory and knowledge of God over the whole world. He is going to fill all the earth with His glory. The next great event that is going to happen is the return of Jesus Christ. So what, what is the rapture? What does the rapture mean? I do believe in the rapture in a in the, the right sense, and I'll get that to, to that later, but not in the sense that so many American evangelicals have understood it. There is no scripture that I can find, that I can look at in any way, that would indicate that Christ is going to return, snatch His church out, and the church is going to go away somewhere else. I find that idea nowhere in the Bible. I've looked, I've searched, I've read. It's not in there. So, so what is... And people say, yeah, but that's what I've heard all my life. My daddy told me that, or my grandpa, or my pastor said, that's what's going to happen. And did you not see Kirk Cameron's movie, Left Behind? Like, didn't you see the movie? This is the problem. This is where people are getting so much of their belief. 
Christian people, Tim LaHaye and some other guy years ago wrote a book called Left Behind and it became a whole series. It's about Christ returns and snatches the church out and it's about this tribulation force that's left behind and they made a movie about it that Kirk Cameron was in and it's like, okay, that's, don't, don't get your theology from, even if it's Christian movies, get it from the Bible. I believed this most of my life, that that's how it would happen. I spent most of my life believing that's exactly how it would happen. It's because it was an, an inherited belief, and those are dangerous because at some point you must deliberate for yourself what you believe based upon what the Bible says. The first time that um, I was challenged on this is when... was a, a friend of mine on staff out of the church that I come out of, brilliant scholar, looked at me and said, you do know that this idea is modern and that the church has never understood this idea about the rapture until recently. And you start looking at it and this is easy to find. There was one man in the 1800s named John Darby. John Darby was a British guy, part of the Plymouth Brethren movement and before Darby existed in the 1800s, there was no real movement in the church that understood the idea of a rapture as far as the people of God lifting up and disappearing from the earth. The idea was not held in Christianity until the 1800s. One man popularized the idea. <clears throat> Another man named Schofield, who made Schofield Study Bible, grabbed hold of that idea and put it in his study notes, and it swept American evangelicalism. Did not really sweep the world. Most of the, the rest of Christianity around the world looks at this idea and kind of scratches their head about where y'all come up with this. And this is where it came up with. There are two people responsible for that idea, John Darby and Schofield. And when I begin to study and look at this very close, say what does the biblical text actually say about the rapture? So I'd say there's two views on the rapture outside of that. One view is that it is purely figurative, that the church will not actually be lifted up into the, the clouds. The second view, and this is the view that I hold as well, was that when Christ returns, I, I do take that as literal. I do see that we will rise up. I think Paul's words there are literal, that the people of God will rise up word rapture, the word rapture is not found in your Bible, but the idea is the idea that it will be snatched away. Uh, that, that word there that Paul's using is like a violent snatching. Christ is going to come back and take his people. And when Christ does return, we will rise up to meet him. Now, what does the Bible say? We will rise up to meet him, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And here's where we need to understand what the text says. The idea that what Paul is saying is the church will go out and meet Christ, he's adopting that language from the culture. People were used to this word. The word there that Paul uses is, is parousia. And all parousia meant was that the city, the people in the city look afar off and the king is coming to the city. And what do they do? They leave the walls of the city, they walk out, they meet the king, and they usher him back into the city. This was a word in the culture. This is how people would do it. They would go meet the king 
and usher the king back. And this is the language that Paul is saying. The people of God will rise, meet Christ, and they will usher him back into the earth. And Paul says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. And when Christ does return, he returns to judge the earth. So he, the return of Christ does two things. One, it's to judge the earth. And two, it's to consummate his marriage with his bride, which is the church. Revelation 19.6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. So John in the Revelation is using imagery of the church being the bride of Christ, and when Christ returns, he's going to consummate that relationship. We see the judgment of God on the earth at the second coming of Christ over and over and over through bowls and vials and plagues, all these different symbols and images in the book of Revelation. So all of this nonsense, all of this insanity, all the injustice that's going on in our world against our great God will not go unpunished. His wrath will be poured out upon this world. The judgment of God is coming at the second coming of Christ. Matthew 24. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, speaking of the return of Christ, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so what Jesus is doing is he's saying when Christ returns, it's going to be like the days when Noah built the ark for the saving of the people from the wrath of God. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Notice that word away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what Jesus is saying was, nobody saw the judgment coming. The, the waters came and swept humanity away, killed them from the judgment of God. And so will it be when Christ returns. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Now, this has been misappropriated to think it's talking about the ones taken is taken up in the rapture. But because of what he just said about Noah, this is the judgment of God. Two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The one that was taken away, the imagery there is going back to what he just talked about, the flood. One was taken away in judgment. In this scenario, you want to be the one that's left behind in Matthew 24 because the coming and the taking away speaks of judgment. Some are going to be taken away in judgment. Others will be left behind. Two in the field, one taken, judgment, the other left, salvation. This has shadows of the Passover in the Old Testament. You want to be the one who is overlooked. This judgment is not for you. 
It's not meant to make the people of God afraid of who they are in Christ. If the coming of the Lord stirs fear in the heart of an unbeliever, then the unbeliever is well grounded in reality. It should stir fear. You do not want to not be in Christ when Christ returns. That's reason to have fear. I would not want to meet Christ unprepared. But for us, for the people of God, it is a message of hope. Things will not go on as they are now forever. Christ will make the world right again. Romans 8, considered by so many people to be the central hub of the entire Bible condensed in Romans chapter 8. Hear what Paul says about the coming of the Lord. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says that the whole creation is going to be restored, and not the creation only, but we ourselves, our bodies. And we join in creation to groan inwardly, awaiting for the adoption that is to come in the age to come. Please do not view issues like gender debates and abortion and social injustice primarily through political eyes. They are first spiritual matters and when Christ returns justice will be served upon all of these things and mercy will be served upon those who have the name of Christ and are washed in His blood. So what does this new creation look like? The thing that I would say, and it's hard for us to wrap our heads around this, is that it's real. It's not a fairy tale. It really will happen someday. We will live with eternal life in a very real world. I grew up singing lots of songs about heaven. And yes, I am always deeply concerned about us being right in what we believe. And maybe there was some poor understandings about how these things will play out. But what I appreciate about that is that the sentiment was there. The sentiment was right. The longing for a world better than this one. When I was growing up, we used songbooks. And nearly every church in the denomination used the exact same songbook. It said, sing unto the Lord on the front. It had hundreds of songs in it, and I found a songbook a couple nights ago. Found it online. I found a PDF of it online. And I counted the songs in that songbook that talked about the second coming of Christ or heaven. And there were 45 songs in that songbook that were devoted to Christ's return or to heaven. In the city where the Lamb is the light. When I walk up streets of gold, 
This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. These are old song titles. We shall see the King. Oh, I want to see Him and look upon His face. I'll fly away, a song about the rapture. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. Everybody will be happy over there. There's a happy land of promise over in the great beyond where the saints of earth shall soon its glory share. And the Christians of all ages will join in that triumph song and everybody will be happy over there. Why were there 45 songs that were sung constantly in church services about this? It's because what it meant to be a Christian. There was a time in our society when, when life was harder. We didn't have all the luxuries of what we have today. And there was a longing, a hope for that world to come. You know, I, uh, if, if all I had it was in this life, Paul said, I'd be of all men most miserable. But if I can just get to the other side. But we are so grounded in this life that we rarely give heaven a second thought. So Paul writes, he wrote it to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ... No, he says, in Christ, if, even if you're in Christ, we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. And we are so steeped in the first coming of Christ. And I, I do not want at all to minimize what Christmas means. There's no salvation without the incarnation of Christ. But we are so steeped in the first coming of Christ, and we spend a month celebrating it. And... You know, we, we celebrate Jesus' birthday every year. We remind people the reason for the season. We often forget about the second coming. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. It's a beautiful Christmas song, except it's not. That's not a Christmas song. The writer of that song had no intention of that being a Christmas song. It's not what he was writing about. He was writing about the second coming of Christ. Culture adopted it and said, this is a great Christmas song. But the author never said, no, I'm, this is just not at all in his mind. And if you, if you read the lyrics, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns, let all their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. Now I get why that can be a Christmas song because so much of that applies. But what he's, just again, it's like that's not what he was, he wrote a song about the second coming of Christ. Wanting people to say joy to the world the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. We cannot talk about the second coming of Christ without talking about the resurrection of the dead in Christ. And I would encourage you, it's a beautiful chapter to read. I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians on your own, 1 Corinthians 15 on your own. Slowly think about what Paul's saying. He's saying a lot. In this, it's a long chapter and he says a lot. And then read Romans 8. Because what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 is basically your dead body, when it goes into the ground, it's like a seed. And that is the seed that when Christ returns, He's going to raise up as a harvest and you're going to have a resurrected body. 
We all have loved ones who have died in the faith that we miss. And the longer we live, the more that will be true. I know that my life will continue to be marked by phone calls that tell me people who I love dearly or who I looked up to are gone. And that's not morbid, it's just the reality of life. The glory of that is when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise again. We cannot make sense of this by our natural laws. You can't do it. How does a body that is completely gone back to the earth rise again? This is a, a miraculous event that God performs to resurrect, to return to life an immortal, eternal, physical, and this is what I want to get to, is physical body. We will have physical bodies in the age to come. Again, the idea that our spirits are going to go away to this place called heaven and we're just going to be these floaty things on clouds playing harps, you know, it's one of my favorite far sides. The guy is sitting in heaven with his wings on a cloud. He's looking around. He goes, I sure wish I'd have brought a magazine. Um, it's like, no, that's not what heaven is. It is living in a real body in a real restored heavens and earth. This is how the Bible closes out the last two chapters of Revelation. The city of New Jerusalem comes down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. Now you see how backwards this is from what we're used to hearing? We're used to hearing we die and we go to heaven. The imagery of the Bible is the exact opposite. Heaven comes down and reunites with earth. The goal isn't to separate heaven from earth at all. The goal is to reunite them. They are made for each other. And here's, it's, it's easy to miss this, but look what the Bible is doing. The Bible is using this picture to say, just as a bride and groom, husband and wife, <coughs> are made for each other, they're made to fit together, they're made to complement each other. This is Bible language. Just as this, this is how the Bible closes. Just as a husband and wife come together, so heaven and earth come together and reunite. It's the restoration of all things. Male and female are created in God's design for God's glory, and so heaven and earth are made for each other. They complement each other. The great divorce between mankind and God in the garden temple of Eden has now been annulled by the coming of Jesus Christ. And all of this is to say today that we have hope that is promised that will come to pass. What will that age to come look like? I've often thought, um, in the restored universe, I think there'll be music and architecture and beauty. Uh, I've often wondered, will there be baseball in the age to come? I don't know, um, but there's going to be so many things in the age to come that are so much better. And, and ultimately, Paul finally just says, you know what? Paul says, eye is not seen and ear is not heard. Neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for us. My grandpa used to tell me, son, they will be, there will be sounds that you've never heard and there will be colors in the spectrum you've never seen in that age to come. I'm like, yes, that's exactly what it will be. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard. You, like, it would be a fool's errand to try to even come up with a picture of what this is going to look like. It's like 
we, we've had this idea of like we're going to walk on streets of gold and there's going to be gates of pearls and I'm like please understand this is all imagery it's not that we're going to get to live in a big cube gold box in the sky and that's going to be what this is all about that those things are symbols they're representative of what it's going to be because we don't have words we cannot comprehend what that age to come is going to look like the beauty of all this is that heaven is going to come to earth he's going to restore all of these things probably one of my favorite things that about that age to come that we can comprehend is the no more tears no more sorrow no more pain no more sickness no more death those things are passed away they're gone you know the bible says in revelation god is going to wipe all tears from our eyes it's going to be a wonderful glorious time I don't know if Christ will return in my life or not. I believe He could. I believe Christ could come back at any time. I think the Bible is clear that every generation should anticipate the return of Christ. Every generation should believe it's something that could happen in, in my lifetime. And it very well could. But if it doesn't, like I, I remember my my pastor talking about when he came in the ministry in the 1950s that there was a provision I don't think it's this way anymore but there was a provision at the time that if you took your income from ministry if you were paid by a church you could opt out of Social Security he said I knew guys that opted out of Social Security because they said there's no way in the 50s we're ever going to see retirement Christ will return before then when the Six-Day War started in the Middle East in 1967, there were people that said it won't last. Like, Christ is, this is it. Christ is going to return now. My pastor told me, he said, I never dreamed we'd see the year 2000. Didn't think it would happen. Never thought we'd see the year 2000. And now 2000's starting to look further and further away in the rearview mirror. I believe Christ could come back today. But if He doesn't, and we all go the way of the grave, we have a hope that that is temporary. That to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that as we pass away in Christ, we will be with Him in comfort, but there is coming a day when all the dead in Christ will be resurrected at that last trump when Christ returns to this earth. What a glorious day. That should be our hope. That should be our salvation. So as this Christmas season we celebrate the birth of Christ, the first coming of Christ, let us do so while anticipating and saying, surely, Lord, you are to return someday. It is a promise in the Bible. He is coming back. Amen. Let's stand this morning. We'll close out with a, with a song. Let's just take a moment and pray. Can we, Jesus, this morning? We are in your house and we've seen so much in your word and I have not done this subject justice. There's so much more that needed to be said that I wanted to say, but Lord, we, we communicated and we talked this morning about the promise that we're not so much concerned about how it's going to happen. We see through a glass darkly. There's still things in your word that I don't understand. Um, but what we do understand is that we have a promise that we hold to. It's the promise of our hope that you will not leave our soul in corruption and death, but that, Lord, that we will be resurrected again and that there will be 
there really will be a people of God in a generation, whether it's us or a future generation, that will experience the return of Christ in their lifetimes. And Lord, we, we hold fast to that. Jesus is coming back, and we thank you this morning for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen.